Welcome, you're listening to the You're Crazy Professor, but it might just work, amazing podcast. A brief history of workplace health and disease. It was Aristotle who declared that all paid jobs absorb and distract the mind. And although the level of distraction referred to may be debated, there's an overwhelming amount of evidence to show that having employment is better for one's health than the alternative. After sleep, work is the biggest sole occupier of most people's time, and the importance of its impact upon health can't be ignored. In fact, it should be acknowledged as a way of improving our well-being, your work can be your health and wealth. When prehistoric man or woman struck one stone upon another to fashion a blade, axe or arrowhead, they also invented the occupational hazard. In short, almost all processes that humans engage in, be they work or leisure, house the potential for short or long-term effects upon our health. In the case of our prehistoric toolmaker cousins, The hazards were not just the sharp, flinty tool being used, or the one being made, but also the process in what they were doing. Sparks and debris from the strike, noise and vibration from the impact, respirable dust from the clash of stones, and bad posture from hunching over the workstation for too long. The Stone Age was the first age of occupational risk, with later smelting in the Iron Age making this riskier. Despite such conditions, our non-Neanderthal friends carried on undeterred and eventually fashioned cars, computers, flat panel TVs and hadron colliders. It can be said with confidence that prehistoric humans did not endure exposures to the modern day hazards of psychological strain, commuting woes or line manager bullying. Obviously there was no concept of work-related stress, there were more important things to be concerned about. Life and the process of hunting, gathering, building and making was much more perilous but less complex than it is now. The 17th century physician from Carpi in northern Italy, Bernardino Ramazzini, is credited with being the first who understood the link between occupation and ill health. In his book De Morbis Artificium Diatriba, he advised doctors to follow Hippocrates' rule for diagnosis by asking patients about their symptoms. Ramazzini also added a caveat. I may venture to add one more question. What occupation does the patient follow? Following Ramazzini, concern was directed towards the obvious and pressing physical hazards for workers. Dusts, gases, chemicals, explosions, fire, noise and heavy loads. Occupational disease continued and evolved with the Industrial Revolution, resulting in the Factory Act in 1802 and an English physician, Sir Thomas Legg, later being made the first inspector of factories. As technology and working practices developed, so too did mechanisation and jobs, and workplace dangers became more job-task specific. The dust breathed by someone sharpening tools on a grindstone, leading to respiratory problems like silicosis, is a hazard distinctly different from the asbestos dust fibres breathed in by a builder who may develop mesothelioma. Specific safety issues evolved, loss of fingers for stonemasons, 
burns for those working with steam power and crush injuries for those working with steam engines being but a few. Public health also suffered as a consequence of the Industrial Revolution, not just with workers being packed into close domestic confines and slums, but through workplace cross-contamination. Diseases were passed more readily around cramped factory floors, not only through coughs, sneezes and poor hygiene practices, but also via specific working practices too, such as weavers who licked the ends of pieces of cotton on a bobbin to make them easier to thread into the shuttles that they used. As far as workers' daily health was concerned, they were dark satanic mills indeed. <sighs> the scientific investigation of potential workplace hazards and the study of hazard exposures has been the cornerstone of industrial medicine since the early 1900s. A rule of thumb that industrial hygienists and epidemiologists still use to determine if occupations are susceptible to specific disease is to observe whether that disease is more prevalent in a given working population than in the general population or other working populations. Hairdressers, exposed to chemicals and water through persistent hair washing, tend to have more skin diseases such as eczema and contact dermatitis than office workers or the general population who do not endure such prolonged exposures. This case control approach to occupations and occupational disease spotting has been able to inform us of many important trends and developments in worker ill health in hundreds of industries. Examples include musculoskeletal disorders amongst minors from poor postures and heavy workloads, asthma problems in bakers from breathing in flour dusts, clusters of childhood leukaemia in the children of power plant workers from non-ionising radiation, it's thought, and hearing problems in metal plate workers who've been exposed to loud factory processes. Shut up already! Damn! Two turning points with massive impacts upon work and disease occurred in the mid-1990s. The first was a shift away from occupational medicine's focus on the traditional physical cause of diseases, such as chemicals, ergonomics, gases, fumes, long working hours, shift work, toxins, metals, viruses and dusts, but instead they began focusing on the psychosocial stuff. They changed their focus towards psychosocial hazards, the root cause of many health problems in the workplace, rather than just the physical hazards. This biopsychosocial perspective followed the philosophical unification view that the mind and the body were unified, that they're one, and any troubles that bothered the psyche would also trouble the soma. The mind would trouble the body, or the body could trouble the mind. The mind and body were unified and reflected the health or ill health of each other. This change of focus in industrial medicine occurred after occupational medicine was unable to scientifically explain some unusual large-scale cases of workplace ill health via the traditional biomedical model. Mysterious health problems in the 1990s such as repetitive strain injury, sick building syndrome and a whole gamut of musculoskeletal soft tissue injuries in the absence of physical trauma and the infamous Gulf War syndrome all failed to be associated with reliable and consistent physical hazards. Gulf War syndrome affected several thousand veterans of the first Gulf War, with symptoms ranging from fatigue, depression, anxiety, flu-type symptoms and sensitivities to certain chemicals, all present in different combinations and intensities in different sufferers. This lack of consistency in symptoms and consistency in hazard exposures for the sufferers 
led to a failing in attributing Gulf War syndrome to any physical causes, and it was therefore viewed as having psychological predisposing causes rather than physical ones. This turning point marked the existential age of if you believe you're ill, then you're ill in the workplace, and the psychosocial self-diagnostic door to workplace ill health was opened wide. The second turning point was a management turnaround concerning workers and personal problems. The 1990s saw, for probably the first time in modern line management standards, the acceptance that workers' personal problems were to be acknowledged as impacting upon their workplace well-being and productivity. As the UK entered the post-Diana age of emotional outpouring, the adage that workers should leave their personal problems at the door and be professional was outdated, and workplaces had to take account of personal circumstances as possible contributory factors to any ill health. Personality type, attitudes and past experiences can all combine together to produce a catastrophically maladied individual. A distressed person doing depressing or stressful work would therefore be a very depressed worker indeed and this view of the worker as a psychological entity is still currently dominant. Such distress, if untreated, would eventually lead to ill health via two mechanisms. First, there'd be a genuine physical manifestation of symptoms as an extension of psychological distress. And secondly, when distressed or unhappy, tolerance to physical symptoms reduces, making complaints or help-seeking more likely. For some, the notion that persistent lower backache could develop through psychological distress alone seems like anathema. And it's less than two centuries since medical knowledge thought that unhappiness was a cause of pellagra, beriberi, or even Down syndrome. Only the future will show if contemporary thinking about workplace and ill health is correct. Either way, the self-diagnostic door to workplace ill health was flung as wide open as it would go, some would say even taken off the hinges. So why am I optimistic about workplace health? Well, if workplaces are full of workers who may only be one bad day too many away from going off sick with musculoskeletal disorders or repetitive strain injuries or the perennial workplace stress, why am I optimistic? Why do I still do workplace psychology? Well, absences due to work-related stress have increased in the UK by approximately 220,000 to 250,000 new cases each year since roughly 2001. The explanation for this may not be a straightforward one, but it could be related to UK working patterns. The UK has more full-time workers as a percentage of the workforce than any other EU country, and the UK works more full-time hours than any other EU country. UK workers put in more unpaid overtime than any other EU country. So put short, being a full-time worker in the UK isn't great, and it leaves you less time for those other essential things that we call work-life balance, such as health, family, exercise, hobbies, relaxation. Don't forget, our Victorian forebears broke the 24-hour day into three lots of, of eight hours. Eight hours of work, eight hours of sleep, and eight hours of rest. Modern working practices has nibbled away at those eight hours of sleep and those eight hours of rest, and the biggest part of our 24 hours is now work and the commuting that often goes with it. Despite the overworked and sickly outlook of workplaces at present, 
Regression to the mean can only suggest that improvements in workplaces have to happen. The lot of a typical working person in the UK will be improved by legislation, humanism and good practice. Pre-employment health screening should become more commonplace, helping to ensure that potential staff are fit for their job and allowing the identification of staff with health problems who may need support in order to carry out their role successfully and stay in their job without being made ill. This could cover a range of risk factors from those with genetic susceptibility to skin cancer who apply for outdoor jobs, younger workers who've got acquired hearing loss from iPods, and working in warehouses with constant streams of forklift trucks that they may not be able to hear, through to those workers who may be susceptible to certain allergies if working with animals or chemicals. Coupled with this, routine health surveillance in the workplace should be used to keep a check on the health of workers, especially those who do have the predisposing factors. Kind of like a medical, once every six months, 12 months, just to make sure that the work they do isn't making their pre-existing health conditions more pronounced. People are essentially voluntarily trapped in their workplaces between 8 and 12 hours a day on average, far longer than they would spend in a gym or taking a walk. With thoughtful architectural design and careful planning, workplaces can be engineered to increase ambient exercise and keep people more active. The concept of occupational rehabilitation is not new. Setting escalators to slow speeds in order to encourage people taking the stairs as an alternative and locating departments as far away from each other as possible within a building, providing healthy food in canteens, encouraging lunchtime exercise groups, limiting car park facilities, giving free fruit or placing fruit in vending machines for shift workers are all possible strategies. Common strategies are already used in industry include providing subsidised gym memberships or free or affordable bicycles to encourage more active commuting. A widespread acknowledgement that the worker is a person with a life and demands outside of the workplace can only help to improve and maintain well-being among working people. The occupational arena is the best forum for improving public health and combating chronic health problems like diabetes, obesity or mental health problems. The quest for work-life balance may be a false and unobtainable goal, but the contemporary climate of trying to ensure workers go some way towards acquiring balance will pay dividends for health and well-being in the future. This is another good reason why more and more organisations should consider flexible or hybrid working there's no need for staff to be in the office five days a week with that commute. If they can work from home, commute less and spend more time doing healthful things, the company will benefit in the short term and in the long term. You've been listening to the You're Crazy Professor, but it might just work amazing podcast. I hope this has been useful. I hope it's been informative. Happy working. <laughs>